Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this uh, special program to begin the new year. Uh, Again, it is the year 2023, and uh, we are now in our 12th year of sharing uh, Archbishop Sheen's wisdom on the radio, and it began in Canada in February of 2012, and um, uh, from that humble show on one station, we are now on, I want to say, dozens and dozens of stations throughout the world, and uh, I'm grateful to our good friends at Radio Maria Canada, uh, Radio Maria USA, and uh, Radio Maria Australia for sharing our broadcast. And so uh, we are grateful and uh, our audience keeps growing year after year. So it is the new year and I know everyone likes to make New Year's resolutions and, um, you know, how am I going to amend my life? What am I going to do? Will I change things? And I believe that it all begins with a conversion, uh, a conversion of heart, a conversion of mind, it's, uh, again, hard to sometimes fathom that uh, this change is just in little increments. Um, and I think that's what Fulton Sheen had always uh, advised us, that uh, the big change comes with little changes. Uh, but it begins with that little, uh, I want to say, moment of conversion, uh, where we move um, in the right direction, <laughs> We turn around, you know, and go towards God. So I'm going to share with you today uh, an old recording from Fulton Sheen's Catholic Hour program from 1948. And the title of the talk is Theology of Conversion. And so uh, we'll listen to Fulton Sheen explain that. And then I'll, uh, during the second half of the broadcast, I'll share uh, one of his catechism lessons on the philosophy of life. And I think it, um, you know, if your philosophy is right, then things will be right. And uh, when your philosophy is wrong, well, then things go wrong. So, again, we need a good catechism lesson from Archbishop Sheen. So, uh, we begin, as I said, from, uh, again, 1948. Um, Again, I think a lot of times people say to me, those old broadcasts that you share on the program, it's like Fulton Sheen's talking to us today in the year 2023. And and he really is, because truth is in season um, all the time. It doesn't matter what year it is. So, uh, looking forward to that. So, again, as I say each week, I just invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy this great communicator that God has given us, the Venerable Sheen, as he talks about the theology of conversion. Please enjoy. Friends, the time has come to treat the all-important subject of the cause of conversion. We start with this simple fact. 
You cannot do it by yourself, nor can any human being on the face of God's earth do it for you. No flat tire can fix itself, and no frustrated, unhappy person can make himself spiritually happy. Something more is needed to cure a man than his own libido or instinct. Water can never rise above its own level. And no amount of drainage from the unconscious to the conscious mind can make the stream of thought clearer, cleaner, or stronger. If you rely on yourself to remake yourself, you will have the feeling that it is all auto-suggestion or self-hypnotism, or that you are talking to yourself. If you rely on someone else who denies a soul, you will feel that the contact is like that of two billiard balls which repel one another when hit. If a man were physically sick, he would not try to cure himself simply by medicines developed within his own body. And in like manner, when a soul is spiritually sick, I speak not of the mentally sick, it cannot completely heal itself by its own efforts and without the need of an energy and power from above. It is because many individuals today are so painfully conscious of their own powerlessness that they yearn for a kind of compulsiveness which will dispense them from responsibility. That is why they throw themselves into communism, to escape self by the destruction of self and the mass. The tragedy of life is that so many frustrated souls try to heal themselves without the aid of the divine physician. What they miss is the possibility of becoming something more than they are. It must be remembered that it is possible for a human being to live on three levels. The first level is the subhuman or the animal in which a man is content to live only for his body, his flesh, and pleasure. If reason is used on this level, it is only to discover new techniques for thrills and amusement. Man can also live on a second level, which is the rational, in which he will lead a good pagan life, defend a natural kind of justice, but without great enthusiasm, be tolerant, philanthropic, favor the underdog, contribute to community enterprises, but refusing all the while to believe that there is a knowledge above his own intellect and a strength above his own will. Beyond these two levels, there is a third, which is the divine level, in which a man, thanks to God, is elevated to the supernatural order and made a child of the Heavenly Father. These three levels may be compared to a house. The basement represents the animal or unconscious level. The first floor, which has some comfort, stands for reason. And the second floor, which is orderly, luxurious, and peaceful, stands for grace. To suggest to a person who lives in the cellar of animal pleasures and carnal lusts that there is a nicer floor above is to bring down upon one's head the charge of restraining freedom and the biological urges of life. 
and to suggest to those who live on the plane of reason that there is above that floor another one of faith and grace is to invite a ridicule of religion. Those on the first floor have no understanding whatever of the supernatural. They regard it as a kind of pious extra, like frost on a window pane. They are willing to admit that there is evolution in the universe, that progress has been upward and vertical from the chemical to man, but when it comes to the development of man, they refuse even to admit the dignity of man and degrade him by making him an animal. Those who refuse to admit grace above nature are very much like two tadpoles who were one day discussing the possibility of there being something beyond tadpoles. And one little tadpole said to the other little tadpoles, you know, I think I'm going to stick my head above this water and see what's up there. And the other tadpole says, don't be silly. You don't mean to say there's anything in this world besides water, do you? Now, a reasonable being should ask himself, if chemicals can enter into plants, plants be taken up into animals, and animals assimilated into man, why cannot man himself, with the peak of visible creation, be assumed to a higher power? The rose has no right to say there is no life above it. And neither has man, who has an infinite capacity for life and truth and love, the right to say there is no life above him. There is a higher life, and this we call the supernatural life, or grace, because it is freely given. The supernatural is not the result of the development of the natural, as the oak is the development of an acorn. A good man in the natural order does not become Christian by himself. Stones do not become elephants. Man by nature is only a creature of God, as a stone or a star are creatures of God. The supernatural privilege of being a child of God, so that one may call him father, is something which no more belongs to man by nature than life belongs to a crystal. If this microphone here, through which I am speaking, suddenly began to bloom, that would be a supernatural act for the microphone, because it belongs neither to the nature, the capacities, and the flowers, the powers of a microphone to bloom. And if a flower suddenly began to move from place to place and to touch and taste and feel, that would be a supernatural act for a flower. For it does not belong to the nature and powers and capacities of a flower to have five senses. And if an animal such as a dog suddenly begins to quote Shakespeare and then recite some lines from Sophocles, that would be a supernatural act for a dog. For it does not belong to the nature and powers and capacities of a dog to reason. Now if man, who is a creature of God, just as a table is a creature of a carpenter, begins to throb with the very life of God, so that he can call God not only his creator but his father, that would be a supernatural act for a man. Man would then be something which he is not.
thanks to the gift of God. That gift which makes man a partaker of God's nature is called grace. The church which is Christ's mystical body invites every man to become something he is not. He has made one thing. He is invited to be begotten another. There is a world of difference between making and begetting. We make what is unlike us. For example, a man makes a wagon. We beget what is like us. For example, a mother begets a child. Inasmuch as we were made by God, we are unlike him. Inasmuch as we are begotten by God, we become like him, partakers of his nature, his children, and the heirs of the kingdom of God. Now this brings us to the important problem of how man becomes more than he is or how a man is converted. The answer is man is lifted to the supernatural state and converted from a creature to a partaker of God's nature through the grace of God with which man freely cooperates. There is operating throughout nature a law that no lower order is ever lifted to a higher order. Without first, the higher order coming down to the lower, and secondly, without a sacrificial change on the part of the lower nature. Before the phosphates, the carbon, the sunlight, and moisture can enter into plant life, the plant must come down to them, take them up into itself, and in their turn, they must surrender the form of existence they had before they can be elevated. Sunlight in the air is not the same as sunlight in a plant. It loses something in order to gain something. In like manner, before the plant can live in the sentient life of the animal, the animal must come down to the plant, the plant must be plucked up from its roots, and before chemicals and plants and animals can live in a thinking, loving human nature, man must come down to them, and they must surrender their lower manner of existence. If the plants and animals could speak, they would say to the rain and sunlight and carbon, unless you die to yourself, you cannot live in my kingdom. And in like manner, man who can speak can say to everything that is beneath him, unless you die to yourself, you cannot live in me. But once they have finally been assimilated into man, they fall under a new government, their life is enriched, their nature is elevated, and this becomes their reward for surrender and immolation. That gives the answer to how man begins to live the higher life in God. First of all, God must come down to man. This is the meaning of what happened in Bethlehem and Golgotha. Secondly, man must surrender his lower nature. But here there is a difference between man and all other creatures. Man is a person which sunshine, grass, and cows are not. Their lower natures are destroyed by surrendering themselves to man's body. But inasmuch as man is a person, he is indestructible. 
What man surrenders, therefore, is only a part of himself, which is sinful and ungodlike. And this is done by an act of mortification or a spiritual death. But the personality survives. And such is the meaning of our Lord's words, unless you die to yourself, you cannot live in my kingdom. This death to a lower nature, this birth to divine life, is effected through the sacrament of baptism. As you could not live a physical life unless you were born of your parents, so you cannot live a supernatural life unless you were born of waters of the Holy Spirit. Without that gift of God, which is freely given, man has a physical life, but he has no spiritual life. His body is alive, thanks to his soul, but his soul is dead because of the absence of the life of God. It may be asked if grace makes us the children of God and illumines us to see true values, why is it that some do not accept grace? The answer is because man is free. Though we cannot initiate our own salvation, for the first movement comes from God, we can prevent it by refusing to cooperate. God's grace and our freedom are related like the two wings of a bird. Any gift can be rejected. God's love is never imposed under the penalty of destroying love itself. The rich man in the gospel went away sad because he had great possessions. And St. Augustine in his life at one time said, Dear Lord, I want to be good. But not now, a little later on. What then is the cause of conversion? Conversion is due to the emergence of divine power, the inner penetration of spirit and spirit, the influence of the changeless upon the fluid character of man. And in that consciousness and awareness of presence of divine grace, the individual turns his personality, every scrap of it, over not to his higher self, but to God. Those who have responded to that gift of grace begin to feel the presence of God in a new way. Religion ceases to be pietistic or a loving remembrance of our Lord, a kind of sentimental companionship with him through hymns and sermons in which one becomes a fellow traveler of someone who lived 1900 years ago. Though there is considerable emotional fulfillment in this pietistic plane, it is still not Christianity. And it does not become so until one enters the third stage, which is the spiritual, where Christ actually dwells in our hearts, where there is an awareness rooted in love, where the soul feels the tremendous impact of God on itself and Holy Communion, where there is unity of faith under one head, in one body, and vivified by one spirit. Let no one ever tell you that any priest 
ever makes a convert. He does not. Not any more than he makes a sunrise. The person who is instructed for the faith is like the soil of the field. The priest who teaches him is like the farmer who tills the soil. But it is God who drops the seed. All the plowing, harrowing, cultivating of the field without goodwill on the part of the person, without faith as a gift, would be profitless and vain. God's grace is never wanting to a soul, but our own goodwill sometimes fails. If you have not the supernatural gift of faith and grace, your personality is undeveloped. You can be fed until you were fed up. You can surround yourself with every material pleasure to satisfy your every passion. You can be given license to do whatever you please. You can be castled, satiated, cuddled, amused. But time and time again you will be seeking that that you have not, grasping for something already out of your reach and feeling for the unworldly in the heart of the world. You know very well that you have not the resources within yourself to perfect and complete yourself. You have looked within yourself and found misery. You have looked all around you. You found a war-weary and a war-fearful world. Do not be discouraged. There's some place else to look. Begin looking above to the God of grace. Spend an hour a day in prayer and meditation. And when you pray, ask God to enlighten your intellect, to strengthen your will. He is already knocking at the door of your soul. Refuse not to open it, and you will find peace. I cannot tell you what this piece of soul is any more than I can tell a blind man what color is. But I pray that each of you may have it. My only purpose in broadcasting is to make you love God. That is all. You send me a thousand letters a day to confirm this interest. And we are encouraged beyond measure. I wish that with my extremely limited facilities, I could answer that many a day. That our good Lord should make use of such a poor instrument as myself to communicate to you the knowledge of his truth is a proof not only that he is indeed humble of heart, but that today, as on the first Palm Sunday, he can come into the Jerusalem of your heart riding on an ass. But believe me, to each honest, God-seeking soul, my time, my interest, my efforts, 
will be bent to your service. In that desire to love God more, we are friends. So, God love you. We invite you now to join Monsignor Sheen as he offers this prayer. God from whom to turn is to fall. Toward whom to turn is to rise again. In whom to dwell is to find peace. God whom no one loses unless he be deceived. Whom no one seeks unless he has been called. Whom no one finds unless he is made pure. God whom to forsake is to perish. Whom to search for is the same to love. Whom to see is the same as to possess. God toward whom faith urges us. Toward whom hope raises us. Toward whom charity unites us. God in whom and by whom and through whom alone we can be made happy. It is to thee we address our prayer. We beseech thee, hear us. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed that reflection uh, on the theology of conversion. And I love how Fulton Sheen reminded us time and time again that you cannot do it by yourself. You need some help. You need God. And so uh, let us pray for God's help uh, throughout the year. And I'm sure we will stumble and fall a few times on our New Year's resolutions but with God's help, it is possible. So, again, and uh, I want to thank our good friends uh, at uh, bishopsheentoday.com. And uh, there, it's a, a simple website that was set up back in the year 2012 when we began uh, sharing Bishop Sheen Presents on the radio. And we thought we would have a website that would archive all the radio shows so that if you missed uh, one of our shows, you could re uh, listen to it at your convenience. And so uh, on the website, bishopsheentoday.com, you'll find every radio show we've done right from the beginning at 2012 up to uh, to our show today. So uh, again, there are many years of audio recordings there. And so you can download them for free and enjoy them at your convenience. And there is also a video section uh, on the website um, where you can watch uh, over a hundred of uh, Fulton Sheen's uh, recordings from his television shows, uh, his many lectures, and uh, his TV specials. And so uh, lots there too. And there's even a book section where you can uh, download a few free books. And of course, there is uh, a few tabs where 
all of Sheen's titles, and I believe uh, there's 66 books that he penned, uh, we provide the links where you could purchase those books. And so, again, it's everything you want to find out about Sheen, his writings, his recordings, and, of course, his television work, all in one site, uh, bishopsheentoday.com. Okay, we will now uh, spend some time with the Catechism. And uh, it's our New Year's resolution here to share as many of the Catechism lessons that we can uh, throughout this calendar year. And uh, hopefully we'll get uh, 40 to 45 of them done. Uh, Again, there's 50 lessons in the Catechism series uh, that Fulton Sheen uh, put together in 1965. And uh, again, it's, uh, they're available for free download. You'll find it. You'll just Google the Sheen Catechism. And uh, you can, uh, of course, uh, have Fulton Sheen be your teacher. And uh, again, Fulton Sheen had hundreds of thousands of souls to his record. Uh, he put on convert classes on a regular basis, and uh, people would listen to his instruction. And uh, so he put it to, um, again, vinyl Uh, back in 1965 because he wanted to leave something for the church so that people could learn the faith. And so we'll be sharing those lessons with you throughout the year here on Radio Maria. And so we'll start off with lesson one, and uh, this lesson is titled The Philosophy of Life. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. This is Bishop Fulton J. Sheen talking. And this will be the beginning of over 24 hours of talking. Women are accused of doing all the talking. This is to prove that men do their share. I remember some years coming back from Europe, and a steward came out on the deck of the ship, And he said, are you the Bishop Sheen who gave the mission sermon at St. Patrick's Cathedral two years ago? Yes. He said, that was a wonderful sermon. I enjoyed every minute of that hour and a half. I said, my good man, I never talked an hour and a half in my life. Well, he said, it seemed that long to me. Now, this will well be over that hour and a half. And we have had alternatives in making these discs. One alternative would be to write out everything that I was going to say to you and then read it to you. The other alternative would be to study, to meditate, and then to talk out of the fullness of my heart without notes. That is the way that I have chosen to do. Now, this second method has many imperfections about it. There will be faults. There will be mistakes. I will miss a word here and there. And I am absolutely sure that there will come a moment in your life and in listening to these records, that you had wished that I had read it. You will be somewhat in the position that God must have been in 
when he made Adam. He looked at Adam and then said, I could do better than that. And then he made Eve. But we've chosen this method of the open discourse in order that we might commune and have an encounter one with another. And the subject, in general, will be the philosophy of life. Now, where begin? Well, there are two ways of waking up in the morning. One is to say, good morning, God. And the other is to say, good God, morning. We are going to start with a second. We will start a long way back. And people who wake up that way have an anxiety about life. I suppose their life might be characterized in two ways. First of all, to them it seems rather absurd. And considerable literature is being produced today on the absurdity of life. I suppose one of the best expressions of that absurdity was a novel about a city on the other side of the river. And in this particular novel, there were two factories. One factory was on one side of the river and the other factory on the other side. And the factory on one side of the river took great big stones and smashed and grounded them to powder. Then, when the stones were reduced to powder, they shipped the powder to the other side of the river where there was another factory that turned them into great big boulders. Then the boulders were sent back to the first factory, and so the routine continued. This was to be a literary expression of the way people today regard life. One finds this absurdity often, too expressed in the writings of an existentialist who pictured three people in hell. Each one wanted to talk about himself, his own aches, his own pains. And the others were not interested. They were concerned only with their own aches and pains. And finally, when the curtain goes down, the last line of the play is, My neighbor is hell. Now, this is the way some people live. And along with this sense of absurdity, there is also a drift. Many minds are like old man river. They just keep floating along. No goal. 
just a kind of a, an arrow without a target, pilgrims without a shrine, journeys at sea without any kind of a port. Now, what is the common conclusion of people who wake up and say this? Good God morning. I think the common characteristic of them all is life has no meaning. It is without purpose, without goal, without destiny. I remember when I first went to Europe to study as a young priest. I was following courses during the summer at the Sorbonne in Paris principally in order to learn French. And I dwelt in a boarding house that belonged to a certain woman whom we will call Madame Citron. I was there about a week. And she came to me and said something, but it was all French to me. You get so angry in Paris because the dogs and the horses understand French, and you don't. Well, there were three women school teachers that were living in the boarding house from Boston, and I asked them to act as an interpreter, and this was the story that came out. She said that after her marriage, her husband had left her. A daughter that was born to them became a moral wreck in the streets of Paris. And then she pulled out of her pocket a small vial of poison. She said, I do not believe in God. Sometimes the thought comes to me that there is a God, and then in case there be one, I curse him. So I've decided simply because life has no meaning and is absurd to do away with it. I intend to take this tonight. Can you do anything for me? Well, through the interpreter, I said, I can't if you're going to take that stuff. So I asked her to postpone her suicide for nine days. I think it's the only case on record of a woman postponing a suicide for nine days. Well, I never prayed before in my life as I prayed for that woman. And on the ninth day, the good Lord gave her great grace. Some years later, on the way to Lourdes, I stopped off at the city of Docks, where I enjoyed the hospitality of Monsieur, Madame, and Mademoiselle Citron. And I said to the village curé, are the Citrons good Catholics? Oh, he said, it's wonderful when people keep the faith all during their lives. He did not know the story. So it's possible to find one's way out of this absurdity. But now let's come to a question which interests all psychiatrists. And interests all of us. What is the difference between a normal and an abnormal person? The difference is this. A normal person always works toward a goal or a purpose. The abnormal person looks for escape 
mechanisms, excuses, rationalizations in order to avoid discovering the meaning and purpose of life. That is the difference. The normal person sets for himself a target. For example, in this life, a young man might want to be a doctor or a lawyer. But beyond that, there's something else. Suppose you ask, what do you want to do after you become a doctor? Well, I want to marry, and then raise children, and then be happy, and then make money, give money to my children, and then there comes a last, and then. The normal person knows what that and then is. The abnormal person, however, is locked up within the barrel of his own ego. He's like an egg. He's never been hatched. He refuses to submit himself to a certain amount of divine incubation in order to arrive at a different life than he has. Now, what are some of the escapes of the abnormal person? Because that's the way he spends his time. If he wants to go, for example, from New York to Washington, he isn't concerned about Washington. He's concerned about giving excuses why he doesn't go to Washington. Now, just to mention a few of these escape mechanisms of the abnormal person. One, love of speed. I believe that an excessive love of speed, or should I say, a love of excessive speed, is due to a want of a goal or purpose in life. So they do not know where they're going, but they certainly are on their way. And there may even be an unconscious or half-conscious desire to end life because it is without purpose. Another escape would be uh, sex, throwing oneself into business in an abnormal kind of way in order to have the intensity of an experience atone for a want of goal or purpose. One of the very famous psychiatrists, Dr. Young, said that after 25 years of experience of dealing with mental patients, I would say that at least one-third of my patients had no observable clinical neurosis. But all of them were suffering from a want of the meaning and purpose of life. 
And not until they discover that will they ever be happy. In other words, the vast majority of people today are suffering from what might be called an existential neurosis. The anxiety and the problem of living. The answering of the question, what is it all about? Where do I go from here? Now, how find it? I know what you're thinking. Now you're thinking, now he's going to tell us to get down on our knees and pray to God. No, I'm not. I may say that a little later on, but I'm not going to tell you that now. And why? Because people who have an existential neurosis are too far away from that for the moment. I'm offering two solutions. First, go out and help your neighbor. Those who suffer from an anxiety of life do so because they live only for themselves. Their mind, their heart, each has been dammed up. And all of the scum of the river of life makes of the heart and mind a kind of a garbage heap. And the easiest way out of this is to love people whom you see. If we do not love those whom we see, how can we love God whom we do not see? Visit the sick. Be kind to the poor. Help the healing of lepers. Find your neighbor. And a neighbor is someone in need. Once you do this, you begin to break out of the shell. You discover that your neighbor is not hell, as Sartre. That your neighbor's part of yourself and is a creature of God. Not very long ago, there was a father brought to me his young son, a very self wise, conceited young delinquent who had given up his faith and was bitter with himself and everyone whom he met. The next day, the boy ran away from home. He was away from home for a year. The boy came back as bad as ever. And the father brought him to me and said, what shall I do with him? I said, send him to school. But not in the United States. 
So I recommended another school. I do not write and ask you what that school was. I recommended a certain school to him. And about a year later, the boy came back to see me. He said, would you be willing to give me moral support for an enterprise that I have undertaken in Mexico? He said, there's a group of boys in the college where I am who have built a little school. And we have gone all around the neighborhood and brought in the children to teach them catechism. We have also brought in a doctor from the United States once a year and for one month to take care of all of the sick people of the neighborhood. And I said, how did you become interested in this? Well, he said, the boys went down there during the summer, and I thought I would go down too. And he recovered his faith and his morals and everything else in his neighbor. It is the poor, the indigent, the needy, the sick, fellow creatures of God, who give to us great strength. Some years ago, there was a, an Indian who went into Tibet. He went in to do a little evangelizing of that non-Christian country. And he took with him a Tibetan guide. In the course of the trip, they got very cold crossing the foothills of the Himalayas. They sat down, exhausted, almost frozen. And this Indian, whose name was Singh, said, I think I hear a man moaning down there in the abyss. And the Tibetan said, well, he said, you're almost dead yourself. You can't help him. And Singh said, yes, I will help him. So he went down, dragged the man out from the abyss the best he could and carried him to the nearby village and came back completely revived. Revive that act of charity. And when he came back, he found his friend who refused to aid the neighbor frozen to death. So the first way to escape the anxiety of life is to find your neighbor. The second way is to leave yourself open to experiences and encounters with the divine which will come to you from without. I say, leave yourself open. Your eye does not have light. Your ear has no sound or harmony. Food of your stomach comes from without. Your mind has been taught. Your radio pulls in unseen waves from the outside. Therefore, allow this hole in your head 
is holding your heart. Receive certain impulses that come from without. It will perfect you. No matter how far away you be from what I'm talking about, they will still come. I remember once inviting a woman to see me who had just lost her 18-year-old daughter. She was very rebellious, had no faith whatever. And she said, I want to talk about God. I said, all right, I will talk about him for five minutes, and then you talk about him or against him for 45, and then we will have a discussion. Well, I was talking about two minutes, and she interrupted me. She stuck her finger under my nose, and she said, listen, if God is good, why did he take my daughter? I said, in order that you might be here, learning something about the purpose and meaning of life. And that is what she learned. She found it. She discovered it. So I am suggesting that you will not just reason yourself into the meaning and purpose of life, you will act yourself into the meaning and purpose of life by breaking the shell of egotism and selfishness, by cleaning the windows of the moral life and allowing the sunshine to come in. You would not be seeking God if you had not already in some way found him. You are a king in exile. You have a kingdom. We will tell you more about him later on. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed our beginning of the year program uh, with Fulton Sheen talking about the theology of conversion and about the philosophy of life. And so uh, a lot there to <laughs> think about, uh, not just this week, but uh uh, throughout the year. And so uh, please know that you can find uh, these uh, broadcasts on our uh, on-demand feature at uh, bishopsheentoday.com. And uh, you'll also find uh, our recordings on the uh, Radio Maria sites. Uh, we're on, of course, Radio Maria in the United States of America, uh, Radio Maria Canada, and recently, we've been added to uh, the Radio Maria family in Australia. And so uh, many of the Radio Maria websites have an on-demand feature where you can listen to previous broadcasts. And so I would encourage you to do so. And uh, also, I invite you to uh, bring a friend next week and to uh, share uh, this beautiful experience. Uh, because uh, Bishop Sheen, as I said earlier, had hundreds of thousands of souls to his record. And so he's doing something right to bring souls to Christ. And so uh, my favorite Bishop Sheen saying is, unless souls are saved, nothing is saved. 
And it really is about saving souls, including our own. And speaking of saving souls, I love when uh, there are conferences that are announced and uh, again, a great opportunity to hear excellent speakers. I know the uh, Lift Jesus Higher Rally in Toronto is coming up in March, uh, but I'm happy to announce that there's a few men's conferences uh, in Ontario where, uh, again, men can gather and uh, have some fellowship, listen to great speakers. So on January the 28th in London, Ontario, uh, there will be a men's conference uh, with the guest speaker being Dr. Johns Bergsma. Uh, Many people know of him for the University of Steubenville and from EWTN. And so uh, it'll be a full day. Uh, Lunch will be served. Uh, The cost is $35 per person. And uh, the conference is titled Running to Win. And of course, uh, the registrations can be found online uh, at the Family Foundation Institute website. And so again, it's called Running to Win Men's Conference. And there'll be another conference in the city of Stratford. Uh, It's called the Canadian Martyrs Men's Conference. And it will be what I like to call a traditional conference with uh, priests giving a number of talks. And, of course, it's a full day from 8 in the morning till 9 at night. Uh, There'll be three uh, catered meals. Uh, Confessions will be available throughout the day, Holy Mass, and, again, a number of great reflections. And uh, yours truly has been asked to give a talk. And so I'll be looking forward to that. And the theme of the conference is Reclaiming Catholic masculinity. So again, tickets can be found online by looking up the Canadian Martyrs Men's Conference on February 18th. And uh, tickets are $80. And again, great value for an all-day conference with three catered meals. So look forward to that event. My dear friends, thanks for joining me. And uh, again, look forward to being with you again next week. And so until that time, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.